Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I am joined by Mike T. Nelson. Mike, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. As you know, as you know, here in the Midwest, we're covered in snow or maybe buried in snow. <laughs> yes, that is true. So, um, Mike, before we get into the topic today, why don't you tell the listeners who you are and uh, what your background is? Yeah, so I'm Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I live here in Minnesota, Badness Heights, White Bear Lake area. And the semi-short version is I went to college for way too long, which I would not recommend anybody to do. <laughs> I actually added it up and it was... Good old professional student. Yeah. Yeah. I did 18 <laughs> years full time um, in sort of like two or three stints. I did an undergrad at St. Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota. Did a Bachelor of Arts in Natural Science, minor in Chemistry and minor in Mathematics. And then went to Michigan Tech. So up in the UP of, Minnesota, UP of Peninsula there of Michigan. So go far north as you can. And I did two years postgraduate mm -hmm. work there. And then two and a half years working on my master's in mechanical engineering. I did mostly biomechanics, uh, solid mechanics, right? the advanced study of how shit breaks. Um, but I couldn't get funding. So I ended up doing a heat transfer model mm -hmm. in a monkey. So imagine a monkey sitting in front of a massive microwave transmitter. So I created a model mm -hmm. to try to determine any deep tissue heating effects. And at the time, the okay. people who were funding it said, oh, yeah, it's for new uh, collision avoidance systems on cars, which is funded by Brooks Air Force Base in Texas. So I'm like, why do they give a shit about collision avoidance systems on cars? And after I graduated about five years later, my advisor sent me this little piece, a clip from the paper that says, uh, military declassifies ray gun. He goes, oh, yeah, this is all your research. I'm like, oh. And he's like, yeah, it was so classified. <laughs> we couldn't tell you it was classified. <laughs> Surprisingly, the model actually worked. So it was good. Wow. Um, yeah. After I finished that, I decided uh, I was going to work in kind of biomechanical area. So I worked for a medical device company for 12 years in cardiac, mm -hmm. uh, looking at pacemakers, defibrillators, a little wires, leads that run down into the heart. And around that time, like two years after I started there, I was like, oh, maybe I'll go back to school again. Uh, and <laughs> I, I was thinking about doing a master's in a more anatomy and physiology area, but didn't know what I would do with that. So I ended up uh, doing PhD work in biomedical engineering. I did that for, oh God, five and a half years, almost finished the classwork for that. Couldn't get funding for research, uh, dropped out of that eventually, and then went over to the exercise physiology department. Uh, did a PhD there in mm -hmm. exercise phys, metabolism, uh, which took seven years full time because I had to start over again and you know, little difficulties, publishing papers, disagreements with advisors, et cetera. And then I worked on right. the concept mm -hmm. of metabolic flexibility and heart rate variability. And then along the way, I started coaching people, training people officially in 2005, I think. Um, did a bunch of free stuff right. before that. And yeah, eventually transitioned everyone to online about eight years ago. And so right now uh, I teach for Walsh University and online I teach for Rocky Mountain University. I'm associate professor at the Kerrigan Institute uh, for Clinical Neuroscience. 
And then I have my own business, which is Extreme Human Performance. And then I also, as of a couple months ago, started working part-time doing assessments uh, with Rapid Health. So Dr. Andy Gelpin and Dan Garner, oh. uh, Doug Anders, the guys who run Barbell Shrugged and all those guys over there. Um, so yeah. So okay. That's been, yeah, for sure. That's been super fun. And then, you know, there are various projects like uh, trying to finish the Triphasic 2 book with uh, Crazy Uncle Cal. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So what do you, what do you assess? Um, so there I'm helping Andy Gelpin look at what they call visible stressors. So they divide it into visible and invisible okay. stressors. Uh, so Dan is primarily doing a lot of the lab work, which is a little bit more on the invisible stressors. You know, do you have micronutrient deficiencies? Do you have gut issues, digestion, a whole bunch of stuff. And so then I'm hmm. kind of taking the top line view of, you know, all the assessments they do from breathing assessments, moving assessments, VO2 max, you know, strength, grip strength. Um, so putting these all together, most of the time I'll have some of Dan's analysis at the same time too. So taking all of that and looking yeah. at nutrition mm -hmm. and sleep and hydration and trying to do like a full like systems approach of it. And then they've got different grading scales yeah. of how do you grade it? And at the end of the day, the client gets this huge report. It's a lot of info, but it's also trying to make it actionable. Like where is the leverage? Like, okay, knowing all these sure. things, start here and then let's work here and let's work there, right? Because that way the client's getting more results for the less time that they actually uh, put in at that point. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been super fun. Like all the guys are great. I've known them for years and uh, yeah. yeah, it's actually pretty fun to work on a project together. And I had done some stuff on a smaller scale with my own business. And so I've always been kind of obsessed with what yeah. is sort of the, the systems approach to it and they were doing it on a, an even bigger scale. So that's been super cool. Yeah. Well, you basically just highlighted exactly why I wanted to talk to you about today's topic because you have such a deep history and knowledge and experience with anatomy and physiology. And like you were just hinting at how everything works together. And so today's topic is reflexive performance reset. Um, and this is something that I'm not sure how hot it is now, but for a while it really took the sports performance world by storm. And that was partly due because Cal Yeats did really help bring it to the United States and started showing it at clinics and conferences and it just really caught on because of the effects that it can have, particularly in the short term. And we'll talk about that today. So for someone who is unfamiliar with RPR or reflexive performance reset, can you just give like a, a quick background on what it is first and foremost, and then the theory behind how it works? Yeah. So I'd say RPR at a high level is a way to interact with your body and nervous system to get muscles to work better. That could be higher force output. That could mm -hmm. be recruitment order. And there's lots of systems that do similar things. But what I like about it is that it, in my experience, it's relatively easy to teach people. Um, you know, full disclosure, I do teach on occasion for RPR. I've taught a lot of the level one, level two from, you know, various places in the U S all the way to even like in Australia and other countries. Yeah. And it's pretty wild to take like just level one and level two, which are online now. And at the end of those 
sessions, if people go out and apply it, they can get some pretty crazy results. Um, the first time I ever heard of it was when I was still doing my PhD at the University of Minnesota. So I've known Cal for, oh God, probably going on 14, 15 years now. And mm-hmm. the lab that yep. I was in was just around the corner from where he was at. So if I had any free time, I'd go down there and sit in his office and just bug the shit out of him with random questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So he came over to the lab one day and he's like, hey, hey, I got, I got this guy flying in from South Africa and he's going to do a cert here in mm-hmm. June. It's like, I'm like, oh, that's cool. He's like, oh, man, you got to come to this. You got to come to this. And I'm like, well, well, what is it? He's like, crazy shit, man. Crazy shit. I'm like, <laughs> okay, like how much is yeah. this cert? He's like, oh, man, it's just $1,500. I think, oh, God, okay. Like, I'm going to pay $1,500. I'm like, okay. Like, if it was anybody else that came to me and told me that, I'd be like, screw mm-hmm. you. Like, I'm not giving you $1,500. Mm-hmm. And so it mm-hmm. turns out that was uh, Doug Heal, who had the system be activated from South Africa. It was the first time he had taught it as sort of a formal level one, level two in the U.S. Um, so I went to it and, you know, in all honesty, after the first day, I was like, I don't know, this just seems a little bit too weird. Like, yeah, you know, nothing really happened. And the next day we did some visual stuff also with it. Um, and for me, that was like a yeah. huge change. Um, so all of a sudden everything yeah. started working better. My heart rate variability went up like 15 points. My vision was better. Movement was mm. better. I was like, oh, maybe there is something to this. Um, so I just started, I just took 30 people and called up all my old clients and stuff and said, Hey, you know, let me come practice on you. I think this will be helpful. I just did the certification and, you know, after the first 30, it's going to be like $200 a session. Right. Cause I said, I just called around and like, who's the most expensive soft tissue person I can find. There was some guy doing yeah. ART sessions for like 150. So I'm like, great. So I'm $200 because yeah. I wanted to see, does it work? All I did was just RPR mm-hmm. on people and the results were actually pretty crazy. And then I'm like, okay, well, will anyone really pay for an actual session and yeah. do they find it useful? And surprisingly, a bunch of people did and it was extremely useful. Um, so the the model I do, which yeah. I'm in Minnesota, is kind of a hybrid. So technically it's more of the B activated model. So the difference between B activated and RPR is B activated is Doug Heal and he still does more of the medical side. So physical therapists, chiros, you know, people who are mm-hmm. licensed to do kind of hands-on therapy, which varies depending upon your country, depends upon your state. And then RPR is the same ideas, a little bit different, but the client or the athlete is doing the work on themselves. So you'd be guiding them through, okay, let's work on this area. Let's work on that area. And you would do some of the testing before and after. So the model I ended up okay. doing is, a little bit more of the B-activated model. Um, I'm in Minnesota. Yeah. So, so far, I don't need a license to do hands-on work on people, which is kind of nice. Um, hmm. So I'll do the whole session on them. I'll do all the testing. And then once they're done, then I'll give them a video with, okay, now that you're done, we got you to this level. Here's the exercises you need to do, you know, to work on it and to to keep those adaptations. Okay. Gotcha. So describe what it is you actually do as best you can as far as like okay if someone is going to see rpr or do it on themselves what are they going to see someone doing or what what are they going to actually have to do when they perform the techniques yeah so the drills themselves are it just looks weird right 
So I often tell people like if I just <laughs> yeah. if I didn't go to the certification and had practice with it or no cal or had tested a lot of it myself, then mm-hmm. I would have looked at a video and went, This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. There is no way yeah, well, that any doing? of this is ever gonna work. Right. And that was yeah. I talked to Cal about mm-hmm. this originally when they started with the system in the US. I'm like for God's sakes, don't put any of the videos online because it's not going to make any sense to anyone whatsoever. And it doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the drills you would do is if I work along the back of my head, so right where you feel where your skull comes into the top part of your neck, that would be an activation drill for your glute max. You could do an old school strength test, muscle test, you know, Kendall stuff, manual muscle testing, whatever word you want to associate with it. You could even have them do a glute bridge. You could do some performance drill. It doesn't matter what you test. And then you would have them work on that area and then you would retest them. Mm. Okay. Are they better or worse or any different? And most of the time when I did that, almost everybody got better. I was like, what? So you're telling me like working on the back of my head is going to make my glute max work better. And he's like, yep. And so obviously the next question then is, well, why does that work? Um, And so some of them are things called Chapman's reflexes, which there is some older data on you can look up. A lot of the spots are acupressure, Mm -hmm. acupuncture, you know, type sites. Some of them are lymph sites and some of them are just uh, neurodevelopment areas. So if you watch a kid learn to crawl, one of the first things they'll do is once they get down on all fours is they have to lift their head up, right? Because you have to lift your head up to see where you're going. And it turns out when you lift your head up, they're normally their hip is going into extension at the same time. So there's kind of like a neural Mm -hmm. reflex with the head going back with the glute mean, I should say more technically the glute max, basically your hip being able to go into extension. And it turns out that most of these are actually two-way streets, meaning if I work on the back of the head, that actually helps uh, glute max or hip extension work. Um, So some of the other ones like working on the sternum Mm -hmm. area helps with uh, diaphragm, so there's different points throughout the body you can work on. The nice part is most of them are actually in the front part of the body. So you as an athlete can get access to these sites yourself. It's not like yeah. it's, oh, it's the middle between your rhomboids and your back. And you're like, ah, I can't reach. Like most <laughs> of them are actually on the front part of the yeah. body. Um, yeah. and it, so it, and amazingly enough, again, it seems to work, right? Because we'll probably talk about is there formal research or not. And in my background, so years ago, probably in the early 2000s, I ended up doing a fair amount of hands-on work. That was through the Z Health system at that point. Later on, mm-hmm. took a bunch of classes from Tom Myers, did a bunch of yep. uh, fresh tissue dissections, actually taught anatomy and physiology for a while. And I actually got to the point where I had done hands-on work for probably five or six years. And then I kept noticing like the same people would come back again. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like I was a wizard on the table. Like I get to, you know, saw all sorts of crazy shit and it looks like magic. But then they kept yeah. coming back. So I'm like, wait a minute. Why do they keep coming back? Something's not working. Something's yeah. not working, right? So one day I was like, I don't remember if I was mm. talking to a buddy or thought of it myself. I'm like, hmm. So I finished doing everything I was doing. I was like, I get up, walk around the table, lay back down. And when they did that, like all the magical things I did like disappeared. I was like, uh-oh. Mm. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. So all the stuff I did didn't even hold up <laughs> under gravity of them walking around the table. What makes me think this is going to hold up under yeah. any type of heavy load or high stress? And so then I got yep. really worried and I just started testing everything. And what I found was sadly, most of the stuff I did didn't really hold at all. Like it just disappeared. Mm. 
And I was like, oh, this sucks. Like I spent how many thousands of dollars to figure this yeah. out. I can do stuff on the table, but it doesn't transfer. So when Cal sure. first came to me with the RPR stuff and told me what it was about, I was like, there's no way. Like, there's no way you're going to do any work on yourself. That's It's not even going to hold up under gravity. I said, I tested a lot of this shit for like yeah. two to three years. I couldn't find anything that was helpful. And he was like, no, man, we tested it. We had, you know, $50,000 force plates. We did it before and after. We loaded guys up to like three, 400 pounds on a squat. And their rate of force development was faster. And I was like, I don't know. And even then, like, I still mm-hmm. didn't believe him until actually I went home and you know, just started some testing, some stuff on my own. And for whatever reason, which I don't a hundred percent understand, to be honest, it does appear to hold up under load. And the crazy part is you get better results doing it right before you go under a heavy load, right? Because the heavy load is a stress on your nervous system and high stress has a way of just sort of imprinting things onto your body for better or worse, right? So at a very, very, 30,000 foot view, things like PTSD or high stress traumas are normally the result of something that was very stressful. Duration is normally short, not always, um, but it leaves Mm -hmm. an impression upon your nervous system. Just like if you do a very heavy load, like a heavy deadlift has a potential to make you move better or potentially make you move worse or in worst case, potentially injure you. Doesn't mean heavy deadlift is bad. It just means that the effects from that are more pronounced. And so by doing some Mm -hmm. of the RPR before, you can get a better recruitment pattern, you can get better performance under load, and then that load is actually cementing or imprinting better patterns into your body at that point. So it turns out it's actually can be used in a more beneficial way. Interesting. I definitely want to return back to if we have time and if I remember the force plate stuff, but yeah, yeah. before we get there, before we get there, I just to like, so the listener understands, can, can visualize this if they've never, if they've never heard it or seen it. If you saw someone doing RPR, you essentially would think they're doing some form of self-massage if they're doing it to themselves. Yep. And if, if, they, if you're doing it to someone else on a table, again, it would just look like massage or body work. The, the difference like I'm RPR, torturing them. <laughs> exactly. Like the difference <laughs> between like massage, which can be painful on its own, RPR is that some of the areas of the spots where, you know, for lack of a better term, you would massage are like right on bone. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, for example, like Mike said earlier, the area to activate the diaphragm, when we say activation, we're just saying like improve the functioning. Is that a, that would be an accurate way to describe? Yeah, you're improving the function, right? Because ugh, people yeah. get so wrapped up around this, right? They're like, oh, well, the diaphragm, if it wasn't activated, you could never breathe and you'd be dead. So your diaphragm is always activated. It's like, okay. But there's mm-hmm. different levels of activation, right? And we know this, right? If we put some under a very mm-hmm. heavy load and we tell them to move it fast, you are going to get more muscle contraction or more fibers activated than if you told them to use half the load and go slow, right? So we know there's a gradation sure. of output. So mm-hmm. I think of it as you're hopefully helping the coordination so what muscle is being fired at what time? And then the yeah. output, like how much of that muscle is actually being recruited, activated, you know, whatever sort of colloquial yeah. term you want to use. Okay, uh, good. Uh, yeah, because that is important to get like the terminology. I don't know, just get clarity on that. I mean, so like for, so people understand like, exactly what we're talking about. But the, uh, the spot for the diaphragm is along the sternum. So you would literally... 
like take your thumb and finger and you would massage your sternum all the way down, up and down, and also the edge of the bottom of your ribs. So it's like an an upside down Y pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, The spot for the glute is, as Mike mentioned, the back of the skull, but also the back of the jaw. So you would take your finger and you would put it in the back of your jaw and you'd basically you know, rub up and down. And that can be really painful for people. But then oh, yeah. I could question I wanted to ask you, okay, you have some spots like that, okay, where it's on a, like on a bone and you have some spots that activate an area that is not the area that you're actually touching. So the glute being on the back of the skull and, and the jaw, but then you have others where it's more like a traditional spot, like for the psoas, it's right on the psoas. It's like right on the area that you would palpate. I mean, you, obviously you can't like directly palpate, but you're right above the psoas. So why do you, why is there this kind of like, I don't want to say discrepancy, but some, some spots are not on the area that you're activating. Some are like, that's something that's always confused me about RPR and why it's that way, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if you ask Doug, which I've asked him in the seminars before, so I've taken the training from Doug also, the level one and level two, and mm-hmm. I think I've taken mm-hmm. level two twice. I don't know. I can't remember at this point. I think I did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think he just gives you a different story every time. So the last time when I asked him, he said he was you know wandering through the desert for 40 days drinking tequila, and this is how he came up with it. Right? I think he just makes up some story, right? Um and as far as I can tell, it's just a amalgamation of, hey, if we're trying to look at these main muscles, what are different areas on the body that can get them to work better? And what you find is there's a lot of stuff is redundant. There's some stuff from ART looking at, you know, palpating and working on the origin and insertion. That may be helpful for who knows what reasons. There's a bunch of different theories related to that. Like I said, a lot of it's, yeah. uh, you know, developmental reasons, neuron development. Um, the psoas one happens to coincide on the surface of the stomach, but if you were to, like you said, palpate on the psoas when you're, so if you go right to your belly button, go halfway over and right about that mid area. Yeah. Your psoas does run underneath there, but if you do an actual dissection, what you find is the psoas at that point is almost on top of the spine or very close. So if you were to palpate the psoas at that point, you'd have to go through all of that tissue in order to get to it, right? The psoas comes up over the pelvis right. and then dies really far back, uh, super close to the spine, actually. Mm-hmm. So is it over the psoas? Yeah. Am I really palpating the psoas at that point? Probably not. But you find there is that, again, it's a reflex uh, when infants are crawling. So when they're crawling, they're face down. That part of the skin is being rubbed on the surface of whatever they're doing. And when that area is being rubbed, that promotes a hip flexion response. So it turns out that that spot does correlate to the psoas. What is your main hip flexor? One of your main hip flexors is primarily your psoas. You know, rectus femoris can do some hip flexion also across the hip, but only to 90 degrees because it stops right at the the pelvis. Um, So you find some things like that are kind of related, but they're not really related for any particular reason. So it's more of an amalgamation of these different spots that we found over time. And we found new spots since then uh, that do appear to correlate to a specific function. When you think about, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but when we think about various manual techniques, ART, foam rolling, 
even like more intense things like body tempering. I know that there's some thought out there that all of those things have a very general mechanism. Like they're, they're just altering, you know, nervous input to tissue. You're going to get this like short term, you know, change in either like tone or the way that you, that way that you move, but then ultimately it kind of goes back to the way it was. How is RPR different than those things? Number one. Um, and then I guess number two is like you mentioned earlier, over time, you're kind of maybe altering recruitment patterns. And then obviously that would have an impact on movement patterns. Like what gives RPR the staying power, so to speak? To me, what I think the, the big advantage of it is, so before I started teaching, the two questions I had was, you know, what's the potential upside, right? So what is the benefit from this? Mm -hmm. And then two, what is the potential downside? Right. Because when I was teaching it, it's mm -hmm. to, you know, personal trainers and coaches. And some of them are incredibly yeah. experienced. We had, you know, chiros, physical therapists, PhDs, like very, very high level DPTs yeah. show up to the course. Obviously, very knowledgeable of taking a shit ton of anatomy and physiology. Not worried about them. Yeah. Right. But you also have the, the trainer who just did a weekend cert <laughs> who is like, You're a glute, what? Mm -hmm. I don't even know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, so, yeah. When you're asked to teach that wide of a spectrum, that, my first concern mm -hmm. was just from a safety standpoint, you know, even yeah, granted in this system, you're teaching athletes to work on themselves, but you know, you can get some athletes who are highly motivated who could kind of screw themselves up. So I was, a lot of the testing yeah. I did initially was what is the downside, right? Can yeah. you really mess someone up? <clears throat> and what I found was in general, as long as you're not a complete numbnut, right? As long as you're not a complete idiot and, yeah. you know, doing, going bonkers, going to high force on visceral areas and that kind of stuff. Most mm -hmm. of the points there, there wasn't much around there that you'd need to worry about, right? It's like working on your sternum. You could probably go batshit crazy on your sternum and it may hurt. You yeah. may bruise the area maybe, yeah, but there's yeah. no real other structures in there. You're going to really damage, right? It's not like mm -hmm. you're hmm. trying to get to their pec minor. So you're crawling through a whole bunch of shit in their shoulder or underneath their armpit or something, right? You're not generally yeah. in areas that are, you're super worried about structures. Again, within reason. Mm -hmm. And then also, within reason, yeah. Would it make someone move worse? And so, one of the things I did when I taught all the time was okay, here's your before test. Here's your RPR drill. Here's your after test. Okay. How many people got better? People would raise their hand. Okay. How many didn't see any change? Yeah, a couple of people. Like, how many got worse? Like, the whole time I ever taught it for years, I think three people got worse once, which I was able to go over and we changed the technique and we quote unquote fixed them within like yeah. a couple minutes. So sometimes the spots are really hard. Like there's a skill to hitting some of the spots. Like, yes, it does help to have a very basic level of anatomy knowledge in some of the areas. Um, but yeah, so sometimes I've, I found that too with athletes where it's like, well, you're not really where you need to be. And that's probably why you're not seeing effect, but yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Point. So the, the point was you generally would see benefit or no benefit. And most of the time when there was no benefit, mm -hmm. I'd say 90% of the time, they probably weren't on the target. Again, you get some other cases where there's other stuff going on you need to address. Um, so I was like, oh, that's mm -hmm. cool. So even if you don't even know where your pectoralis is, if I tell you, took your thumb and put it on the top upper mid part, like right here, most people could figure that out. Yeah. Um, and the people mm -hmm. I've, I remember I was teaching that on it. 
this one kid comes in after <laughs> the start of the second day and I asked him, I said, Hey man, like how'd the first day go? He's like, Oh dude, this is so crazy. I had swimming practice with my swimmers this morning. So I just did the RPR stuff with zone one and had them swim. We timed their laps and like three of them got PRs. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Like, so you got it all figured out. He's like, yeah. no, man, I don't know what the fuck I was doing with them. And <laughs> he's like, I just did the drills you showed me to do. And like, they got PRs. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. and that's what I found was yeah. like kind of the, on one level, the simplicity of it. It's like, if you do it in the order and you, you hit most of the spots, most people are going to respond mm-hmm. pretty positively. Some people wouldn't see a response, but it was pretty rare that you made people worse. So that yeah. made me feel relatively confident because one of the, the things I was worried about when I was talking to Cal was like, okay, if this is just, you know, anyone show up to this cert, like I said, you've got highly educated people to people with almost no education, you know, yep. and it turns mm-hmm. out most of the downside, there wasn't really a whole lot of downside. Um, so a lot of people could do things that other people in their area who were sometimes really trained in areas had a harder time doing, uh, which to me was crazy. Cause I've done a lot of mm. other systems. I've done some stuff through Z health and PRI and, yeah. you know, functional neurology and a bunch of other things. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff that works, right? I mean, yeah, cool. Yeah. Like, that's my I love PRI. I, I love some my... of the concepts, but yeah. man, I sat in those trainings next to Ron and like had to review my notes like eight times to figure out mm-hmm. what was going on. And again, those are, Courses that are primarily taught to physical therapists. They're not taught to numb nuts like me, you know? So it's <laughs> like, what is the interaction you're doing for the outcome that you'd expect? And if you can do an easier yeah. action and get more of a higher outcome, that's going to be a system that's much easier to teach and easier for your athletes to actually implement. So I guess that's my question, Mike, to the point of like, are people going to get worse? I mean, we can say that about like you kind of like you mentioned a lot of different things like i'm i'm thinking about more common things that people will mm-hmm. do that don't require another person like like foam rolling static even stretching. Like stretching where you will most people will feel better after they do it and and whatnot and i guess i'm not exactly sure where the current literature is as it stands with like things like static stretching and then power output and whatnot but it's pretty um, shitty actually <laughs> so like, let's say if there's something like foam rolling, that's a lot, lot more common, I guess, you know, can we say that about something like foam rolling or even like a general dynamic warm up where, you know, people are almost always going to feel better. They're not going to get worse yet. We know we're going to see some of the same things where movement quality might improve power outputs going to improve, even if we just do these general things. So again, I just wonder what sets RPR apart or do you know, do we know what gives it a little bit more, uh, of a, an, an intense effect? Um, like, do we know that at this point? Nope. <laughs> no is the answer. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I have my own theories, you know, which oh, could be yeah. true, could not be true. Um, mm-hmm. the things that I've noticed is what sort of model do you use for physiology and perfor- performance, right? So the model I use, which I originally ordered from Dr. Arkab, is your body is just wired for survival, which I think is true, right? Everything at a base level, mm-hmm. your body is going to do everything humanly possible in order to survive from metabolism to movement to whatever. Yeah. Now, of course, that's going to have consequences long-term. 
like I said, I worked in a, a cardiac medical device company for 12 years. We would see people mm-hmm. with what's called DCM, so dilated cardiac myopathy. Their heart would be like the size of literally like a volleyball or in some cases a basketball. Just crazy, just completely distended. And what you find is mm-hmm. under echo, it's just moving blood kind of back and forth. It's not getting a lot of blood to come out of the heart. So they're, what's called the ejection fractions real low. And so we had okay. new dev- technology at that time where you put a little wire in, you would pace, put out electrical impulse to the right side of the heart. You get access to the left side of the heart, and then you would start applying a stimulus to both sides of the heart to get it to try to go back to a normal contraction. And what was amazing is that a lot of times within months, the cardiac tissue would re-remodel back to a normal-looking size heart again, which to me is crazy because at the time, like a lot of EPs and cardiologists I talked to, they're like, yeah, you know, we might get some more function out of this. It might be beneficial, but most of them are pretty skeptical that you would see any physical change in the cardiac structure. Um, but you did. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because, again, you're, you're, you're playing with something that's a survival hierarchy and you gave it a better stimulus. So I think of it as mm. efficiency is also highly prioritized. Your body will move wherever is most efficient. Now, again, for one person, that could be completely different. You're like, oh, but everyone moves so horribly. It's like th- that is the most efficient pattern to waddle like two snowballs attached to each other through the airport for their physiology, that is the most efficient pattern because yeah. of the limitations of okay. a bunch of stuff going on. The cool yeah. part, though, is if you give the body a pathway that is more efficient, it literally will switch and take that pathway. So when I'm working on people, one of the thoughts I'm having is, okay, I'm going to start with what is the highest on the survival spectrum, which is going to be breathing. Can I get mm-hmm. their breathing pattern to be more efficient? Can I do whatever it is? that their brain goes, aha, this is a more efficient pathway. I can now do this. And what's crazy is once you do that, you'll see huge patterns just shift automatically. Um, And they generally stay pretty good. So I think the closer you work to that survival mechanism, the better you're going to be, right? So if you were outline like the top three, breathing, right? So diaphragm and accessory muscles, and then hip flexion and hip extension. So if you were to pick the two biggest muscles for hip flexion and extension, right? So in the front side of the body, you're going to have psoas. Back side of the body, you're going to have glute max. So now if we yep. just limit it to three muscles, your diaphragm, glute max, and psoas, which is an RPR system. They would call that your zone one. And what I found was yep. the more work I did on zone one of just those three, like everything else got better, like to make changes to everything else downstream of that was much easier. And I remember having a conversation with um, a buddy of mine, Neil Ramp at the time, who was, I think he was a physical therapist for the Diamondbacks. I think he's with the Dodgers now. He might be with somebody else. And I was telling him about this. I'm like, how do you decide when you're working on someone? Like, what do you go after? What do you do? And he's like, just start in the middle and pretend they're like Mr. Potato Head. Just start in the middle (laughs) and spend most of your time working Mm -hmm. there and things will get better. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, middle. Where are those muscles? Oh, they're mostly in the middle. Oh, where's breathing? Mostly in the middle. Where's all your transfer mm-hmm. from upper body to lower body, gait, left cycle, right cycle, blah, 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 blah. Has to go through the <laughs> middle. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, and again, zone one of RPR yeah. is getting those muscles yeah. to work better. It's all in the middle. Yeah. Most stuff works after that. Where I, I think like foam rolling, even some dynamic drills, it's, will you get better from it? Eh, maybe. I think the more active, the more... You can evolve different parts of your brain, like dynamic mobility drills, like more 
movement, I think you'll see greater results from just because of the inputs that you have to process at that time. But I don't see anyone who's doing it in a, a system of, okay, here's our hierarchy of what we want to do. It's just like, mm. oh, well, your you know, hip flexors are tight, so you need this pigeon stretch, this that thing or whatever. It, it just yeah. feels more like it's kind of this ad hoc or, you know, do our, you know, 21 dynamic, amazing mobility drills first and you'll feel better. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, most people probably will. Yeah. But out of those 21, what are like the top four that have maybe 80% of the effect, right? Mm. Like sort of the Pareto principle mm-hmm. of it. Um, so mm. I think it's working more directly on the nervous system itself and then having yeah. a greater prioritization based on survival of where to start. Okay. So let's turn this then to the research side. Yeah. Um, because yeah, there, there are loads and loads of anecdotal and personal stories of like the effects of RPR. So of course the next question is, all right, let's test this and let's see. Sure how it stands up against the rigor of, of a trial of some sort. And then also you kind of hinted at earlier in the episode of a lot of the testing with this is like manual muscle testing. Correct. Which, so then the next question is, all right, let's put somebody in a, in a more uh, integrated dynamic situation where everything in their body's got to work together. It's under stress. It's under load. It's under decision-making and it's under fatigue or, or those scenarios. How does it hold up? Mm-hmm. Do we have any research on RPR from any of those standpoints and what does it say? So the research we have right now is little to non-existent <laughs> in all actuality. There's a couple in terms of published, right? In terms, in of, terms published. of actual published, right? Right. So yeah, there's okay. a couple abstracts that were poster sessions that have been published. Um, I did a podcast with one of the guys on it. Um, in general, it shows better improvement. Uh, the one guy used uh, the FMS testing, I think, uh, did some RPR on a person. I believe he did a sham intervention also. I'd have to double check. So, you know, hands-on work on someone, okay. but not the, the correct spots. Uh, I believe if I remember right, the FMS scores got better in the RPR group. The other abstract, I'd have to go look because I can't remember what the parameters of it were. Um, but it was very much on the... okay. You know, both of them on the smaller um, pilot, you know, type data. So one of the criticisms of RPR, which is a decent criticism, which I would agree with, is, okay, if this system is so great, like, where's all your published research? Which is a valid criticism. To which I'm like, hey, who wants to do it? Like, <laughs> I've actually volunteered <laughs> yep. to, like, I don't even need to be on the paper. Like, if you're, if you're at the point where you're going to submit for IRB approval in humans, like not just some wackadoo off of Facebook. I don't want to talk to you. Like if you're a legit researcher who has a legit method section, cool. I'll look it over and give you my feedback on, you know, from a research side, what would be a good thing to do. I don't want to be on the subject because I'm already too biased probably into it anyway. So I don't even want to be on your publication. I'm not trying to get a publication out of it. If you have questions, I'll help you from what, you know, my perspective is. And the hard part is who's going to pay for the research? Who's going to do it? Right. How are you going to, you know, the next criticism is, okay, well, that was in general population. That's, that's not in like, uh, elite level athletes. Like, okay, that's, you know, valid. Um, how do we get data in elite level athletes? Well, it's pretty hard because who's going to give up their elite level athletes to let you go screw around with them for a while. Right. Right. Um, so there's some downsides to that. Um, 
in terms of manual muscle testing, eh, the research is pretty split to maybe not super amazing. Again, it depends on what study you look at, who did it. Um, and the hard part of my experience is, like, if somebody came to me and we throw ethics completely out the window and said, I'll give you $100,000 to show that this whatever thing is beneficial by using manual muscle testing, yeah, I could easily do it, right? You can easily fake any manual muscle testing, like, super easy. Yeah, like, to the you sure. could probably get 100 people to watch you, and I can almost guarantee no one could tell the difference either. Uh, you can push on joint space. You can push early. You can give them different verbal cues. You can change a whole bunch of stuff, which unfortunately happens all the time because people want to sell their shit. <laughs> yeah, <absolutely>. <laughs> right. <laughs> Again, does it mean manual muscle testing is completely worthless? No. Like high-level PhD neurologists use it to test different pathologies in their office. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's practical and no one has a $60,000 biodex that they're going to wheel into my living room to like me to put people on to try to figure out what's going on. So it's, should that be done? Yeah, it'd be great. Should someone do it? I hope they do. Um, but in the meantime, so one of the things I've said to people who hate manual muscle testing is cool. But what do you want me to do? Like, what do you want me to, to test? And they're like, well, you shouldn't do it because it's not useful. Okay. But I've got a limited access. I've got a limited time. Maybe you're working with a group of 40 athletes. What do you suggest I do in place of it? You know, yeah. maybe do range of motion testing. There's some other stuff you could do, some performance testing. Great, do that. I think that's useful. Yeah. Um, but most of the time, and I'm not saying this is you, most of the times those criticisms are from people who don't have a solution to it. It's like, yeah, I 100% yeah, agree absolutely. that it, 100% it can be faked. God, I spent two years like falling down the rabbit hole of, you know, AK manual muscle testing. And at the end of those two years, like years ago, I didn't believe any of it. Because I was like turning lights on and off in the room. I was in all sorts of crazy shit. I'd turn music up and out. I'd open and close windows. Like, mm-hmm. you know, stuff that shouldn't make any difference to it. And unfortunately, sometimes it does. <laughs> Which, don't ask me why. I don't know. That's like a whole rabbit hole of the physics and woo-woo. We probably need more beer and other substances before we talk about that. But I found that it did change it. So now, when I do it, I try as hard as possible not to change anything, not to do anything else, give them the exact same cues, same movement, don't push on the joint space. I actually try to give their physiology every possible chance to win the test, right? So push as hard as you can first, like there's different things you can do to try to mitigate it. Yeah. Does that mean it's 100% useful? I don't know. But in addition to that, I've tested uh, resting heart rate, metabolic testing, performance outcome, force plate, uh, heart rate, most of the time those generally show positive, right? So I'm like, okay, if if I faked all my manual muscle testing, great. I probably would not see a performance increase. I wouldn't see a change in heart rate variability. Now, could some of those things be placebo induced possibly? Could be, um, but you know, anecdotally you do tend to see trends over time that things are, are beneficial. There's been some stuff that's been done with uh, surface uh, e- EMG that seems changes with that. Um, the other part, which I know sounds okay. very conspiratorial, is if you're a high-level organization, yeah. you generally do not want to publish or yell to everyone else exactly what you're doing to get a competitive edge. So <laughs> part of that, and, yeah. and anybody can say this, right? You know, you could have like weasel yeah. dirtbag supplements companies who say this too. 
Um, but it is true, right? Yeah. If you're a high-level athletic organization, like some of the ones I've talked to, like they don't even want to be no, don't even tell us we talked to you. Like we we don't want anyone to figure out that they have any idea what we're doing. Some don't care. You know, some are like, yeah, we don't care. They can't figure it out anyway. We'll tell them everything we're doing, right? So there is some aspect of, of that also. Because this stuff, like RPR, is at the highest levels. Like there are pros oh, yeah. doing it. There, I mean, it's what's, you know, that's what's such a unique thing about it to me is this is from pro, like professional organization at the highest level, all, all the way down to high school. Like there are high performance teams using this. And then there's the high school track coach, maybe even the assistant high school track coach. That's a volunteer. It's kind of infiltrated every level of performance. Um, yeah. And the other part too, is like very unique. Almost. I think probably 90% of the high level special forces operators of all sorts, U S Canada, but I've talked to 90 plus percent of them have used RPR or at least familiar with it, uh, which to me is kind of shocking because most yeah. of those groups, they don't care about anything other than performance. Right. And so I've talked to, you know, yeah. pretty high level, you know, marksmen, snipers, et cetera, where everything they do is monitored and measured. Like they will know if something improves it or not. Now you could argue it's, you know, psychosocial placebo, maybe, but those groups tend to not do things over a period of many years that are not effective. Right. For sure. Cause it's like the again, highest... anecdotal data, right? Yeah, for sure. So I do want to return to the back to the force plate data you mentioned earlier for just very quickly. Yeah. Because that is hinting at, okay, what is this doing in an actual, like, again, performance scenario where everything's got to work together to, to provide an outcome. And you mentioned that, you know, the force plates showed greater rate of force development. Can you give any more insight into like the scenarios with that? Like, was it literally just... Let's test your squat, check rate of force development, and only do RPR and then test it again. Or what can we like? What can we learn from that scenario you mentioned? Yeah. So my understanding, and, and Cal will be the one I got this <clears throat> data from, so he'd be the one to actually ask about it. But my understanding is that they had two squat racks set up, both with force plates. The one group they had do RPR, the other group they did not. And I believe a couple of days later, I think they switched groups also. So mm -hmm. each person kind of got mm -hmm. the intervention. And what they saw was that rate of force development went up in the group that got the RPR. The, the people may ask, well, how is that possible? My guess, and for what I've seen from my own testing, is if you can increase the output of the main active muscle group, my little air quotes here, uh, that should give you a greater result. If you can change the activation patterns and also reduce the contribution of the antagonist, so if I just think real simply, like I contract my right bicep, the more my tricep relaxes paradoxically, the more force I can create in the bicep, right? Because I have less of the breaking action. So I think it's yeah. probably on both sides. It's a coordination effect um, and also probably getting a little bit more output from the main muscle. Um, you know, yeah. some of the, again, it's anecdotal, like EMG data we've seen, that's what that kind of shows, um, that you can change some of these activation patterns relatively fast. And again, if people don't believe it, like you can uh, do it on track athletes, watch them run, right? Almost all track athletes are timed, right? So Chris Corfus has done this a lot with his athletes. And, uh -huh. you know, he works at a high school level. 
where he doesn't get to pick what athletes he's not recruiting. He's not like some big college down South or, you know, D one school that says, Hey, we're going to select these group of genetic freaks. You guys get over here. Like yeah. he's kind of dealing with whoever he gets is who he gets. And yeah. routinely they're like, you know, winning state tournaments. Right. So routinely, that's what I think yeah. is interesting. You're not, yeah. it's not just the freaks of the freaks that are doing it. It's, you know, people who are not as gifted, not as genetically gifted, who knows what's going on that are able to see bigger changes also. Yeah. In my experience with RPR, so for, to give a little background for people, um, I was a strength conditioning coach at a college for six years and, um, I'm certified in RPR, our instructor, our head strength coach, he might've been even at the same Douglas heel thing you were at Mike. Mm. I can't remember, but he did Who was the, it? the full on, uh, Kyle Oxner. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. He yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. It was like, the, I feel like it was very underground back then. It's like, hey, yeah, James Snyder was there, like a whole bunch of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like the two-day, full two-day thing Yeah. Um, with Doug. And uh, so, you know, he was implementing with all his teams. And so I typically had the field sports. And he typically had the court sports, but also track. Um I'll tell you what, the team that bought in hook, line, sinker was cross country hmm. because they just noticed a massive effect. Hmm. Uh, and I just feel like, okay, this is a, it's a very repetitive sport. There's not a whole lot of decision-making. There's a very select few movement patterns that need to be accomplished. So if something changes, you're going to know. It's very mm -hmm. easy to tell that something is different. Same with sprinters. And so like the track teams and the cross country teams really really bought in because they could notice a difference extremely quickly the other team that really bought in was volleyball hmm. again very repetitive mm -hmm. uh, you know lots of you know, just there were they had volleyball players that could never squat without pain after a couple um you know sessions with with kyle movement pattern cleaned up no pain all just way way massive improvement then also the overhead aspect the shoulder health aspect yep now like my nerdiness is like, oh, I want to measure, uh, you know, velocity of the spike and all that kind Definitely. of stuff, but we, we just couldn't do it. But those teams really bought in. I will say my teams, I, I don't, I can't say we saw as big of an effect. And the team I used it most with was football. Um, you know, my thought is like, because of all the factors and variables that go into football performance, maybe it's harder to tell if something has changed because it's such a chaotic sport. Um, but in my own personal experience, when I got certified, um, I was dealing with a lot of hip pain, back pain, very, very tight individual. Like I remember this was at, uh, this is actually in Minneapolis at velocity hockey. Facility. Mm -hmm. And that's about a four hour drive from here. And of course, like the way up, my hips just hurt like crazy, just like sitting in the car or whatnot. So I go and get certified. It's a one day. And when you get certified, at least this is how it used to be with the level one, you have your partner, you go through every spot, you do it on each other, and then you tried it on yourself. And then Cal actually did the pregame routine on me. Nice. <laughs> so like I, I got it done like three times. I kid you not riding in the car on the way home, no hip pain, super comfortable. Didn't have to get out and be like, Oh my gosh, stretch. Mm -hmm. I'm so tight. And then the next about two weeks, I did not have to really warm up if I didn't want to at all. 
Yep. I, I could literally just step in the weight room and start lifting. Just get get the barbell, do do my specific barbell warm up. I didn't need to do 15 minutes of foam rolling and then 10 minutes of a dynamic warm up or anything like that. And then before you know it, 30 minutes have passed and we haven't done anything yet. I literally could just walk in. My body felt ready. My movement was very fluid. Um, and that that's where I was like, okay, this clearly something's going on here. But I will say, even with doing the, um, so with RPR, there's something called the wake up drills, which is essentially you do the, the spots that we've been referencing earlier. You do it on yourself as kind of like a, like a warm up, so to speak. It did not stick with me that way. Hmm. Um, now, obviously there could be user error that way. Um, and that's again, where my football team, it didn't really seem to, you know, they were just kind of like very meh about it. Like I'd ask them, how do you feel? You know, uh, and we do the wake up drills with them, but I will say that as a general rule of thumb, I found it to be a lot more effective in, in terms of helping people feel better, helping people move better than something just like general SMR with through foam rolling and whatnot. Now we probably don't have time to get into this. But the other aspect of, of RPR that I think is super interesting is its impact on breathing. Mm-hmm. That's another aspect of RPR that really separates it out for me. Um, and you know, so some people, if you're interested, you can look into that, but to finish up here, Mike, just give us a take home for how sports performance coaches and trainers, I guess, can utilize RPR, but also how they can just view it as part of their like holistic work with clients and athletes. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing. I mean, I got, I've probably got like hundreds of crazy stories from, <laughs> You know, a yeah. guy who came in who almost couldn't qualify for a volunteer uh, fire department position. He had seen seven doctors in Mayo and they all said, you're fine. But his breathing was, you could tell, was just very screwed up, but technically yeah. didn't have COPD. He didn't really meet any of the pathology requirements. And I remember talking to him about it and he's like, yeah, I can't show up my driveway for more than 20 seconds. I'm afraid I'm not going to requalify to be a volunteer fire department. I'm like, yeah. I don't know, man. It was a referral from a friend of mine who works at Mayo. She's like, you need to go see this guy. So he comes up here. And my first thought was like, okay, why is this guy here? And then you could see his breathing was just all messed up. So do a whole bunch of breathing stuff on him, send him out the door, uh, call him back the next day. And he was this very old kind of gruff guy. I said, Hey Joe, how you doing? He's like, ah, pretty good. I'm like, I saw it snowed the other day. Like, did you shovel your driveway? He's like, oh, yeah, I shoveled my driveway. I'm like, you couldn't shovel your driveway for like 30 seconds before. Like, how long did it take you now? He's like, ah, half hour. I'm like, so your breathing must be a lot better. He's like, oh, yeah, it's way better. My chest is sore, though. (laughs) (laughs) Funny story with him is comes back a second time, did some more work on him. And um, my, my wife walks by, and he's just sitting there, and we're doing some work on him, and he's like, your husband's a quack. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh, really? And he's like, oh, oh, no, no, this is a, this is a compliment. He's like, I saw these docs at the Mayo. I, I come here. I don't know what the fuck you're doing, but I leave and I feel better. <laughs> so he was pretty funny. But he was like, you know, yeah. one of those guys who's like, this isn't going to do anything, right? This is the biggest crock of shit I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. I've seen all these physicians. They can't help me. You're not going to help me. You know, so like a very, in terms of a nocebo effect, like a big nocebo effect. Yeah. So I would say 
obviously I'm biased and using RPR. I think everyone should just try it. Like you can literally yeah. take level one and level two. If you don't believe it, just take level one. Like I think if you get really, really good at level one, in my experience, which is anecdotal, you'll probably make a huge difference in like 70 to 80% of the people you use it with. Like, is it going to work for hundred percent? No. I think if you take level two, would you get to, I'd say probably high nineties, you know, somewhere around there, um, which for, you know, eight hours of your time for level one, I think eight hours of your time for level two is a pretty solid investment. The biggest issue I've seen with, with people is not everyone, but in general, the more educated you are, it was much harder for them to buy in. And I, I totally understand why, right? Because I went down that same path of, yeah. you know, I spent $30,000 at this company, 10000 with this company and, you know, done all this work. And, you know, Cal comes in and tells me like, oh, that's bullshit. You just need to do this, you know, eight hour start with this wackadoo from like South Africa. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, there's no way that can possibly be true. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you're just like, yeah. and, it can't be that simple, right? What, what, yeah. well, what's exactly. going on? And, and we struggle with things that, that have the answer of, I don't know yet. You know, right. like, cause I, I, during the level one cert, I had asked Cal questions and his answer was more often than not, I, I don't really know yet. Yeah. And then the question yeah. I would have to people when I was teaching is, can you suspend your disbelief and not understand entirely how it works and see if it does work? Mm-hmm. Right. So the analogy JL would yeah. make is like, he's like, you don't need to know how your effing car works. You just put the key in and away you go. Like nobody cares about how their car really works. They just drive it from point A to point B. Um, but, and I get it. Like I'm kind of on the fence because if, yeah. if you make money doing applications and work with people, you have to do things that work, right? Otherwise you're going to be out of business. Yeah. Um, well, as a get, researcher. get scared about a scope of practice. <laughs> Uh, yeah you know aspect too so for sure yeah i mean if you're worried about scope of practice then just have people do it on themselves right you know to me it's no different than them mutilating themselves with a foam roller or you know body tempering or whatever else like and if those work for you by all means like keep doing it Uh, but as a researcher like you want to do the inverse like so someone comes in to me now at this point in all honesty as a clinician am i trying to placebo the ever-living crap out of them from the second they walk in the door honestly yes Right. Because all they care about is the end result, as long as it's ethical and it's safe and all that kind of stuff. Um, As a researcher, I'm trying to do the inverse of that. I want to see it done on a valid piece of equipment. I want to see a sham intervention. I want, you know, you want to see all these other checks and balances to make sure that what you're seeing is an actual true effect. Um, Even just saying that I get hate mail from people. Right. Because the researchers are like, you dumb idiot. Like, how are you? You know, the placebo effect is bad and blah, 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 whatever. But you know, at the end of the day, the person's paying for a result. As long as it's done in a safe and ethical yeah. way, yeah. they don't care if there's one study or 400 studies. They could give two rats ass completely less about it. I'm interested because I want to know how does it work? How can I get better? You know, that type of thing. So that's always a weird, I think, paradox in the industry that everyone gets eh, mad at each other about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And, um, uh... You know, I think if we're being, if a lot of people are being honest, they probably implement quite a few things. They don't exactly know how they work. They do all the time. They, they do. They still do it. Um, which is. If I asked them, like most people I said, Hey, you love foam rolling. Great. Give me three possible mechanisms. Why you think foam rolling helps. I can almost absolutely guarantee that <laughs> most 50% of people would fail that question, yeah. which is fine. I'm not mad at them. They're not, that they're yeah. using foam rolling, whatever, but there's a lot more things that you don't know about than you realize but it's human 
nature as humans, if something is new to be like, Oh, why does that work? And what is that? And those are good questions. But to me, that's a secondary question after does it work? Like, does it work? And what are the constraints of how it may work to me is a much better question. Right. Well, Mike, this is uh, this has been awesome. I think it's a good, good place to wrap it up for today. Um, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Yeah, uh, best place is just through the website, which is MikeTNelson.com. I have different ways you can get on the newsletter. I'll give you some free gifts there. And uh, yeah, hop on the newsletter. Probably 90% of my content now goes out through the newsletter. So it'd be best place to find me. You can just hit reply via the newsletter. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Mike. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate all the good questions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.